This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this day's edition of Radiotherapy. I am Dr. Doolittle, and let me tell you this morning's show traverses the length and depth of all things health. We've got two guests lined up, count them, two. Our first is Dr. Catherine Daly, a lecturer in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT. Catherine's an expert in drug and alcohol problems, and she's here to talk about the federal government's plan to drug test some welfare recipients. Hmm, sounds very controversial. Following hot on Catherine's heels is Dr Luke Martin, a psychologist with Beyond Blue. Luke is joining us to talk about the stress fathers face after the birth of a child and in particular a new app they've developed to support dads called SMS for Dads. In terms of our regular panellists, we have Dr Trainer Wheels, our representative from the future. Yes, she's a medical student. Our future health might just be in her hands, so let's treat her nice in the hope she gives us free healthcare one day. <laughs> you never know your luck. Trainer Wheels has a couple of stories for us. First, a new study that dispels the idea that obesity can be healthy in certain circumstances. And secondly that the AMA's thrown their weight behind marriage equality. Hip, hip, hooray. And finally, Dr. Panelbeater, our social scientist. That's what I'm calling you, a social scientist who for some time has managed the panel for radiotherapy until finally we realised he was actually smarter than the rest of us, so we gave him a mic as well. So sit back, relax, and let all things health-related flow into your ears, through your body, and out via your waste disposal system. <laughs> Very well, Doolittle, how are you? I'm pretty good. Will you give me free healthcare one day in the future because we've been on radio together? I reckon I could do that, yeah. Oh, thank you, because things aren't going well in the financial <laughs> department, just t- trust me. And uh, panel beater, you ready, little ready for action? How long have you been in here already? You got here nice and early. You've been helping out on marinara. Marinara needed some panel beating. Oh, God, I love marinara. I was listening. I don't get to listen to all of it because I'm driving in here. You know, because I get here early and I've, then I've got to do preparation. Really prepared, yeah. I know. Mm. <laughs> don't, don't, don't disparage my preparation. <laughs> but at least in the car, I was listening to the Stingray segment. Oh, God, that was interesting. Oh, mm. I love Stingrays now. <laughs> um, and Dr. Luke down the end. Hi, man. Yeah, good. Thanks, Steve. There you go. Thank you Sorry, for doctor. coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, call me whatever you like. Most people just call me idiot. <laughs> I wouldn't, not on the first episode. No, no. Yeah. And Catherine. Hi, how's it going? Oh, sorry, that's Dr. Catherine to me. How are you, Dr. Catherine? Good, thanks. How are you? Thank you for making the trip to Brunswick. So we've got a packed group here. One, two, three, four, five of us. Full as a googie egg. Full as a googie the egg. The studio is full as a googie egg. So I reckon we should jump straight into straight it. Straight into it. What have you got up first, Trader Wills? You're in charge of... Um, all things catch up this week. Sure. What do you want to do first? Do you want to I do reckon, obesity or marriage equality? I reckon let's just bang through marriage equality because it's a pretty quick... Uh, no, why are you pun laughing? I just mean... <laughs> marriage is about love and sensitivity and two people sharing their affection and their relationship in a public way. Stop, let's just bang through it. Stop dragging <laughs> my thoughtless um, language into the gutter. Okay, right, go right, ahead. Right. What's okay. the aim, Ada? This is actually pretty hot news, everyone. So you can get it here first, almost. So the Australian Medical <laughs> Association has called on Parliament to legislate for marriage equality. Skip the debate, just legislate, they're saying. That's a nice little rhyme I came up with. Did you like that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, so the AMA released their 2017 
position statement on marriage equality. Um, yeah, so along with this new position statement, Dr Michael Gannon, the president of the AMA, has written to Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten, urging, urging a bipartisan approach. Urging. <laughs> Another pun. Just, just, Sorry, listeners. Bear with us. It's early on. Anarchy in here. Like... Um, <laughs> they're urging a bipartisan approach to changing the legislation. I think this is really excellent news because, of course, this is a political issue, but it is a health issue too. We know that members of the LGBTIQ community suffer poorer mental and physical health than the rest of the population, and much of this is attributable to social discrimination. For example, the LGBTIQ community has the highest rate of suicide of any population group in Australia. And we know that in countries with same-sex marriage, all of this stuff's better. So I think it's hugely important. I think it's pretty overdue, but I think it's good that the AMA are finally on board. Oh, I agree. I love this too. I mean, the reason I loved it is because they they um, phrased it as a health debate rather than getting into the politics. And in particular, I thought this um, sentence that was um, one of the quotes from the president of the AMA was particularly um, thoughtful. It said, and I quote, it's often forgotten that at the core of this debate are real people and families. It's time to put an end to this protracted, damaging debate so that they can get on with their lives. As long as the discrimination against LGBTIQ people continues, they will continue to experience poor health outcomes as a result. Mm. I just, I mean... Look, just hit the I, nail on the head. I mean, on the one hand, you know, as doctors, it's sort of like, you know, oh, OK, our representative group has finally got on board, you know, big deal. People have been saying this for years. Other country have had, countries have had marriage equalities for decades. But, um, I look, I, at least they finally got on board. At least they've come behind and it's nice and strong. What's it taking them so long, Doolittle? You know, I don't know, actually. I don't follow... You know, in all honesty, I don't follow AMA politics that closely. Mm. Um... Often I find that they're more representative of private medicine and I'm a public doctor. So, look, I don't follow them as closely as I should. And I'm, so I'm not really sure. I don't tend, attend meetings. I don't, um, I, don't, I don't really know. What, do you have any thoughts? Well, look, obviously there's all sorts of political positioning that's going to influence decisions mm. on coming out in public. You know, I even think of things like uh, refugee detention mm. and, and what the AMA might have to say about things in that regard. Um, so I can kind of understand they may want to at least project some kind of neutrality. Um, I suspect some of the members are probably quite conservative yeah, too. The medical yeah. profession is, I mean, it's pretty diverse, but it's, there are conservative members. And also there. it's probably fair to note that um, it, they're not that slow in the overall Australian debate. They're slow in the international debate. Mm. Um, but, you know, as, as Australians, we're incredibly behind, you know, similar countries. Mm. You, know, in the, you know, I was listening to some interviews, uh, someone from Canada just last week, where they asked him, you know, what do you think when you come to Australia and, you know, you see how we're so behind? And he said, oh, it's sort of hard to tell because, you know, I got um, his term. He said, I got gay married in 2007 in Canada and it was legal. So it sort of seems weird, I guess. So whilst, mm. we're, so whilst we are behind, I guess the AMA is sort of following the Australian timeline a little bit and it's a fairly conservative organisation. And so as a conservative organisation, getting behind um, marriage equality... It's I a think pretty it's, big deal. I think it's pretty timely. Mm. But in that conservatism's... You know, there's still incredible political power. Even silence mm. is powerful. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that they framed it so heavily as a health issue. Yeah. Mm. This is not about politics, it's about discrimination. And we've got a whole lot of evidence that discrimination is unhealthy, mm. that it actually harms people. They get worse health outcomes. And as long as our discrimination continues, we're going to have an unhealthy group yeah. of people in our society. Exactly right. And on that note, I think discussion of this topic can be quite distressing for a lot of people. So if you need to talk to someone, remember you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue.
I love the way that you're so professional compared to me. And you mentioned Beyond Someone Blue. Be. Hey, Luke, Beyond Blue. Well, they're in the room, Thanks so you that. could Thanks just ring us. <laughs> we always do mention Beyond Blue. We're pretty good. Hey, we better skip on to um, sure. the obesity topic. We might have to shrink that down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's so fine. Move fast. Pardon the pun again. Full of oh puns my this God. morning, dude. Little, my goodness. It's because I'm sleep deprived. I swear. <laughs> I woke up at about 4 a.m. this morning with all the. You know how you wake up at 4 a.m. with 100 work thoughts and things oh, on your head? No. And I hadn't prepared anything for this show. So no. I had to get up, prepare everything. Anyway, you go ahead. Okay, sure. So, this week... Enough about me. Let's talk about you. <laughs> it's not even about me. The, um, this week, the 24th European Congress on Obesity took place in Portugal, and there were some major studies discussed there. Um, but one in particular that caught my eye, which I think was quite interesting, was a really enormous study out of the UK. It involved... Th- oh, my goodness. It involved 3.5 million people. That's enormous. Huge, huge. Sorry, I should stop saying that. It's a bit, it's a it's a good study. Um, it found that people who are obese run an increased risk of heart disease and stroke, even if they appear healthy. So even if they don't have warning signs such as high blood pressure or diabetes, high cholesterol, things like that. Um, so the way they this this study was conducted was the electronic health records of three point five million people were examined in Britain. Um, and groups were divided according to their BMI and whether they had diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and people that had none of those extra problems were BMI? called... With high oh, BMI, yep. yep were you called, tell, have you, did you say what BMI is already? Yeah, well, we, I'll, I'll, I will talk a little bit about oh, BMI, good. yeah. Um, so they were considered met- metabolically healthy obese, um, and that group was still found to have a 50% higher risk of coronary artery disease than those with healthy in the healthy weight range. So it's it's interesting. The BMI, for anyone who doesn't know, is a is a tool that's used to look. It's not a great tool. It, it gets a lot of criticism, but it's um it's a way of calculating how overweight you are by using your height and weight squared over one another. I can yeah, never remember weight, how to calculate so it. So it's your weight in kilograms <laughs> divided by your height in metres squared. And in essence, um, under 18 is considered too thin. 18 to 25 is considered about normal and over 25 is considered overweight. And over um, 30... Yeah, over 30 is, is obese. obese. And then yep. there's a, a very obese. And so, and in particular, the overweight, the 25 and above has always been a bit controversial because a lot of people say, you know, that it really, that BMI is a bit of bullshit and you can be quite comfortably overweight as long as you don't have hypertension or other things that they call metabolic, you know, me- signs of being metabolically unhealthy. Um, and, and, it's, and it's fine and it's a little bit... Overrated, And so what this study did was took the overweight people, divided them up into those who've actually got measurable um, metabolic problems and those who haven't, and then they looked at their outcomes. The outcomes weren't... They were worse in the um, overweight people. Were they that much worse, did you think? I think 50% higher risk of coronary artery disease is pretty significant. I, feel, I think that's pretty compelling. But for some of the others, it wasn't as bad. I think it was a 7% higher risk of um, cerebrovascular yeah, disease. Yeah, 7% which didn't overly impress me. Um, I mean, mind you, it's 3.5 million people. So, you know, yeah, it can measure, it can measure reasonably small changes. Mm. Um, the 50% increase, depending on what the base rate and what age group. But, you know, that's significant. And I think there was twice the risk of heart failure, but I'm not sure exactly what they were f- referring to there, like what the cause of the heart failure would be or... I don't see how obesity would re- would lead directly to heart failure on its own. I think there'd have to be some underlying heart disease. Anyway. And to put it into context too, there's been lots of people saying this sort of stuff for a long time. In fact, I think last year for Triple R, I interviewed Michael Mosley, that, mm. US, that oh. English doctor, and he in particular talks about... Um, 
um, I think it's mainly men, but men who have look okay, have an okay BMI, but have a lot of visceral mm. fat in their tummy, and they're at high risk of diabetes and stuff, type 2 diabetes, and he was one of them, and he did a whole show on it, and then a website, and, you know, published various diets and stuff, as all these sort of celebrity um, doctors do, and, uh, you know, makes a living out of it. Um, and I so it backs up a whole lot of people like that with a decent, you know, large quality study, I mm. guess. Yeah. I still, yep. though, I must admit, whenever I read it, you know, I always, whenever I read these studies, it's a little bit like when I read smoking studies, I sort of get slightly put off by, you know, there's always an, a slight element of blaming, of, I don't know, fat shaming, smoking yeah. shaming, this, that, you know. And I always just wish we could get this information out there without, you know, if someone chooses to smoke, we don't, you know, that's their issue. We don't have to shame them. We can talk about the health benefits and encourage them with health advice without shaming them, you know. And the same, the same when we talk about, you know... I agree, yeah. I felt I was hesitant to even talk about this topic on the show, to be honest, because it, it's such a complex issue. I think this study, as, as much as anything else, highlights the need for more research into the causes and treatment of obesity because it's really complex. It's not just a, a matter of eat better and exercise more. You know, there's a really complex interplay with genetic and environmental factors and policy problems and, and access to... And all the to, personal stuff, you know, yeah. our mental health, all those other exactly, things, you exactly. know, what we're doing in our life, how busy we are, all those sort of stuff. Access Structure and agency. Food. What was that? Say that whole again. A lot of structure and agency. I'll throw that in there. What does Ooh, what does nice that mean? Learn. I can see um, Dr. Catherine. What does he mean, Dr. Catherine? Um, so he's talking about <laughs> things that are out of our place. So structures are. Um, I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel laughing. so bad now. Structural issues that you know. We, so this philosopher Marx talks about. Essentially, we can't pick our parents or where we're born. So mm. we make choices in life, but they're in environments in which we often had no control so like obesity is a really good one because like poverty is you know very closely linked to obesity and that's a lot of the factors that you were just talking about Jess we see um people making food choices based on they've got to work 16 17 Mm. hour days and what food is cheap and if you can't afford to take your family on a holiday then maybe a McDonald's happy meal helps to sort is of debate that mm. um, and you know there's higher rates of diabetes and other obesity related illnesses but is it because they simply choose to eat too much it's no it's they're in these environments where fast food's more available it's more appealing it's um, more affordable Mm, I see what you mean. So there's structural things you don't necessarily get a choice over. Yeah, we talk about the obesogenic environment, which means it's not just about personal choices. It's about whether you have good bike paths around your house and access to public mm. transport or whether there's a, a staircase or you have to get the lift every day and and whether there are, there are good affordable options for healthy food or whether, you know, the, the marketing of shitty food means you can't... You're not at liberty to make a good choice because... That that's informing your choice. Oh, wow, wow, wow. It's all um, very complex, yet very important stuff that we've still got a lot of work to do. And who have we got on the panel today? Dr. Panel Beater, Dr. Trainer Wills, myself, Dr. Doolittle, Dr. Luke Martin, and our special guest. Let's introduce Dr. Catherine Daly. Catherine is a lecturer in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University. Catherine undertakes applied social research, drawing on a diverse array of methods. Her research focuses on young people, chronic disadvantage, drug use, self-injury, gender, practice development and research 
ethics. She's done... I've got this massive paragraph that I'm going to summarise on the run. She's done a bucket load of research around young people, drugs, alcohol services, um, worked on policy, done all sorts of stuff about sustainable models of youth participation in um, youth services. It's very impressive. Trust me, look it up on the internet. I did. Catherine's research focus is on youth with her most recently published book, Youth and Substance Abuse, having had its launch just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we've brought her along to talk about some issues around drug and alcohols and in, uh, alcohol and in particular this um, business about uh, testing welfare recipients. Um, Dr Panel Beadle, why don't you launch? Sure thing. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about the response to the, um, the policy initiative on the back of the budget, but let's start a little general and just find out about your research focus and maybe the profile of the sort of people that you're, you're looking at. Yeah, so um, the, the book was based on young people up to 25, though most of them were about 18 or 19, um, who had experienced or were experiencing um, substance abuse issues and that was sort of self-identified um, and all of them were accessing various treatment services for that. Um, the majority of the groups are 91% of the women and 85%, just over 85% of the sampling total had been homeless. Um, about half had been had contact with child protection systems. Um, 80% of the women had been sexually abused, most of whom also had engaged in self-injury. For the young men, quite high rates of contact with the justice system. So just a group where sort of all of the markers of social disadvantage were, you know, exponentially high. So in other words, if we're going to have a conversation about uh, substance abuse, it's impossible to quarantine that factor or that, that element in their profile because there are all these other things going on at the same time. Yeah, well, and I used to like, I used to work in the sector and we used to really see substance abuse as almost, um, for want of a better word, a symptom of a bunch of things, like right. the focus of the actual treatment, and treatments in quote marks, was never really isolated to the substance abuse because, mm. you know, you've got someone who's homeless or hasn't eaten in three days um, and all of these things sort of proceed in a hierarchy over the substance abuse and the substance abuse tended to be an outcome of, you know, it's warmer on the, to sleep on the streets if you're drunk mm. than if you're sober mm. sort of thing. And probably some kind of um, painkiller in a way, right? Yeah, so the um, strong argument of the book was that, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but the substance use ended up being an emotional anaesthetic for various traumas that the kids had been through. Goodness me. And how did you uh, come across these particular uh, subjects in your your research? Yeah, so I used to work... um, So it all began... um, I worked as a youth alcohol and other drug outreach worker. Um, And when I was working in the field, I I began as a, a reasonably recent graduate. And, you know, you've just come out of uni and firstly you don't have the professional skill set, but you're still sort of turning to the evidence around what is best practice. But the dilemma that we faced in that field was that the evidence available was it didn't um, resonate with the young people we were seeing, and that's because the young people who are available to turn up hmm. to the research, which is often sort of 12-week clinical trials, are not the group who are chronically homeless without... Yeah, so, so as a researcher, how do you deal with that? It's um, a significant issue for you. Yeah, so what, um, you know, when I was in practice, what we had to do was sort of rely on what was like the practice wisdom of, you know, people who had been in the sector a lot longer than you. Um, And as a researcher, it meant I had to start... So that's, you know, what initiated the research journey. I was like, oh, we need to get these people documented because policy funding was being directed to serve models of intervention that were 
not applicable to this group. It was mostly applicable to a very middle-class population. Um, but there was no demographics available on this group. There hadn't been a census of young people in treatment. These mm-hmm. people's pathways hadn't been documented. So as a researcher, you're really beginning at the start. So I'm trying to... Um, so to paraphrase, is what you're saying then that the people who use drugs in a dangerous way, maybe whatever you want to call them, addicted or um, abusers of drug problems, it's such a heterogeneous group, such a variable group, that it's very hard to talk about them in a sing- in a, as, as a single group and develop policies that apply to all? Is that the essence? Uh, no. Um, yes, that there's heterogeneity in the group, but the group have a lot of similarities that make them quite contrasting to people who don't have substance abuse problems. There are some... There's a common constellation of factors that we see that I would argue that early intervention initiatives could and should be targeted there that would see better health outcomes long-term. And what are the common constellations? So... Common things? Um, early childhood disadvantage and trauma, but not a single event. You know, so yep. young people are incredibly resilient. We see this all over the world. Um... But what we know is that resilience is something that's, you know, fostered and can be developed, but the opposite can also be true. So if I go through a childhood trauma, something terrible happens to me, but, um, you know, my mum supports me, I'm believed, I've got a good social network and everything else is otherwise okay, I'm probably going to be okay and perhaps even more resilient later on in life as an outcome of that. But the opposite's also true. So if that happens, you know, so if I'm abused as a child and um, I'm not believed and I'm not get, mm. getting support and then I'm homeless and then I'm placed in state care and I'm moved around multiple times and I've never had a constant group of friends or been part of a school team and then I get kicked out of school for being, you know, the naughty kid or for wagging and then I'm spending all of my time hanging out, you know... Um, with a whole bunch of other people that fit that demography and crimes become sort of a normalised thing or drug use has become a normalised thing, then I'm not going to have the same outcomes as the person that had a good social network to begin. That's very similar for post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a whole lot of factors around the trauma that decide whether you get PTSD, the anxiety disorder or depression mm. down the track. Okay, so your childhood experience of trauma, other structural, other factors that, that um, in that constellation of things, was it? Yeah, so um, access to... Um, you know, the basic things. So housing, I interviewed so many young people who were hungry, like, you know, because services are often closed on weekends. So if I met them on a Monday, they hadn't eaten since Friday, right? And this is phenomenal. Like, you know, we're mm. living in inner city Melbourne and mm. there's, you know, teenagers who are hungry. Like, that, that's remarkable. I mean, I accept that I think it's common knowledge or we would have an impression that we could always do with more services to support these people to actually find that, the support is so negligible over the weekend with something as rudimentary as food mm. is alarming. Why is that the case? Um, funding, I anticipate, is it, is would a, be yeah. the, the biggest thing. You know, funding, paying, you know, having services operate on weekends, um, you know, because minimal, there's a minimum level of staffing that's required. You need to get staff, they need to be paid more, mm. you know, and the services are typically underfunded. As a start point, then you get other things like um, soup kitchens, like the drop-in ones on the city. They're not allowed to s- serve people under sixteen because right. those young people, if they're homeless, are meant to be in state care. Right. Hmm. Okay. Well, that might start taking us in the direction of welfare. So, of this population that you're looking at, how many of those would be welfare recipients of some sort? 
youth allowance new start uh, even? It, I, I wouldn't have the I don't have the figures. Mm. It depends largely on age, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a minimum age at which they're eligible, and then they have to ascertain that they are separated from parents, and if they are um, formally in the care system, then they're not eligible, even if they're yep. you know, not there. You know, so there's a whole bunch so of technical, yeah, yeah, mm. and whether or not they're recipient of it through their parents or whatever. I would anticipate in the adult population, if I was to track this group, it would be higher. So let's get your thoughts on this budget issue. For the for listeners who are just coming across it, um, essentially the on the back of the federal budget, the uh, government has proposed a trial of um, random drug testing, um, targeted and focused drug testing, particularly on youth, um, of about 5,000, I, th- I think it is. Um, and that'll be welfare... Um, youth allowance and uh, and new start in particular, and the the thought is that a positive test or a sequence of positive tests will ultimately lead to that recipient being put on a cashless debit card. Um, so that looks like that's going to get a run, at least a trial. Um, what do we need to start thinking about from your perspective in trying to interpret what that's what impact that's going to have? Um, yeah, it's a really it was a really peculiar um, policy proposal and I think it sort of caught a lot of people out of left field. Um, there's a few things that sort of struck out to me as areas of not necessarily concern but um, made it quite curious. So the drug testing is only for three you know, types of drugs, so cannabis, methamphetamine and ecstasy, none of which are the number one or two drugs of concern <laughs> in people presenting for treatment. Number one's obviously alcohol. Yeah, and um, prescription drugs. Number two, mm. opiates. Yeah, so endone and all those prescription um, Analgesics are the number one abused yep. prescription wow. drug, followed yep. by benzodiazepines, yeah. Um, I mean, and none of these are mutually exclusive. Like, people usually, you know, take mm. what's available and they take a constellation of things. But it's interesting that... If the premise is to reduce substance abuse or substance dependence or welfare-supported substance dependence, that they're actually not looking for the drugs that are most abused mm. by that population. Um, the other thing we know is that people will change, like, change their substance abusing substance abuse behaviours. So, in um, young people, so I was speaking to a mental health worker out in the east recently, and she was saying that because people on court-mandated orders for treatment are have to have um, urine drug testing and that tests for cannabis, what they've seen is over the last few years is a massive increase in young people using synthetic forms of cannabis which mm. don't get detected but have a lot more detrimental health outcomes as synthetic drugs typically mm. do. So, you know, whether or not this testing would actually reduce substance abuse, no, I don't think it would and that's sort of one of the reasons... One of the other things that um, I think is really curious is, you know, what is this going to achieve? Because it's been trialled overseas in America in seven different states in slightly different formats and all of them found that the cost of testing Hmm. was higher than sort of any return economic benefits, but also that the rates of positive drug tests were lower than in the general community. (laughs) Right. Really? Whoa. (laughs) Australia will be different because it doesn't seem to be very random at all. It looks like they're strategically looking for people who they think Hmm. are going to test positive. It sounds to me like, I don't know, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I'm going to. Um, Sounds to me like you're saying you think this is politically motivated rather than being motivated around around solid uh, welfare policy and trying to help people who are having... 
drug problems. Is that mm. is that the suggestion? Given that they've picked ice, which is you know, you know, even though it's not our number one drug problem, it's our the, the community perception is that ice is our yep. biggest problem, whereas alcohol totally swamps it. Um, so is that what you is that what is that your suspicion? Or I suppose you don't want to be critical before it's. But yeah, is that your suspicion? Uh, that, that certainly is my suspicion. I mean, the thing is, the policy is actually premised on the hope that people will fail these tests, mm. right? Because in order for the policy to be effective, no matter what the outcome is, whether it's economic or reduced substance abuse or reduced welfare, because they're saying they want to save money, they're hope they've you know they've they've done forecasting on how much they're expecting to save. Therefore, they're expecting like that's they're forecasting how many people they're expecting to come back on a negative. Right. So they actually need people to be <laughs> testing positive for the policy to work, which is not a great start to social policy. No. Um, but see, I'm not all over this. But you know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not over this policy. I haven't read much about it. I saw it announced. I didn't. I don't know the background to it. But as a, just a lay person, you know, my gut feeling when I saw it was, I, you know, the good part of me thought, oh, it's an attempt to get people into care and it's a group that may be at high risk. See, I would have thought they are a slightly higher risk, but that might just be um, my biases and judgmental, you know, thought coming in. I would have thought you're at a higher risk. Um, and so I thought the good part of me thought that. The bad, the, you know, the more suspicious part thought, eh, it's just kowtowing to people who are, you know, oh, welfare recipients waste their money on drugs. It's kowtowing to that aspect of the community that, you know, are always baying for... Um, for people to abuse and be critical of. So, you know, yeah. I think it's... um, I saw it as a sprinkle of token sort of anti-welfare policy Mm. that will have minimal effect. It affects a very small group of people who generally aren't liked by the public. Um, The costs aren't huge because the budget was seen by a lot of people as a very labour budget. Mm. So now we've got a token liberal (laughs) anti-welfare policy kind of on top that covered the news the next day disproportionate to the actual effect it's likely to have. Mm. So you reckon it's going to... So what would you do instead? I don't think... I I just don't think it will work. No matter, like, you know, I'm coming at it from a social welfare health perspective. But even if I was coming at it through an economic perspective, I don't think it would work either because when we look at these people who f- fulfill this these criteria this chronic substance abuse they're on perhaps disability support on you start nobody looks at these people and wants to be them they're not these are not a group of people who are using drugs for pleasure that may well have started that way but it's gotten to a point where it's not anymore the idea that cutting off their welfare would abate yeah. that you know, is idealistic. We need to sort of address the other drivers. With um, uh, your intimate knowledge of these uh, of this particular population, what voice could you give to what they might be saying about this? What would what would what would that community um, be talking amongst themselves as the, as words getting out that this is uh, afoot? Um, I'm not actually you know sure. I mean, they've been completely excluded from. The policy discussion. Mm. Um, I, I don't know, you know, whether or not they'd be engaged. It's really difficult to sort of would speak it, on behalf of would, them. Would, yeah, no, of course, speaking on behalf is pretty problematic. Yeah. But but it would be another. Um, would it be the sort of thing that they say? Well, of course, we're going to be beaten up by the man, so to speak. Yeah, well, I do. Susp- like in my experience, the group generally are pretty desensitised to being right you know, in quote marks, the bottom rung, to mm. copying the blame, to receiving poorer treatment from 
health, welfare, justice, professionals. It's, that's just kind of their normal, everyday experience. You know, because it sort of struck me on that topic, um, panel beta, that uh, when I saw it, I thought, I tried to, rapidly I was trying to think, which other groups that are paid by the government are being drug tested? Mm. That's what might came to my mind, because I am. You know, I'm a public hospital employee. Mm. I'm not drug tested. I think the police are. I think people in the army are. And I was trying to think, you know, because I know we've covered it over the years, but I couldn't remember off the top of my head which groups are. Didn't Jackie Lambie famously, j- just after the budget, come out and said, you know, if we think it's not happening in Parliament, we've, we're kidding ourselves or something like well, that? Well, you know, that's what sort of struck me. If we're going to start... You know, I can understand police, they're using guns. I can understand the army. Um, you know, it's always struck me that, you know, it, it sort of... I sort of thought, well, this is probably the beginning of a whole lot of people who receive government money being tested, and it sort of just felt so big brotherish when mm. I thought of it that way. But anyway, um, it's such a tricky issue. Yeah. Um, so who who are the so if they're voiceless and as you say they've been excluded in the policy making process essentially who who is who are the advocates who's who's looking out for this? Yeah. So there are welfare groups um, advocating for it. How much traction those groups will get, you know, I, I don't know. Malcolm Turnbull I think was quite surprised that it wasn't a hugely popular policy, and he came out very defensive about it being mm. a policy based on love, um, but you know, how it unfolds and logistically whether it's even possible is another question that's been asked a lot. Well, hey, um, Catherine, thank you so much for coming in and explaining that whole stuff. It's one of those watch-this-space sort of areas, isn't it? It's got to um, obviously get through Parliament, although if it's a trial, maybe they'll just launch it, I don't know. But uh, we'll keep a close eye out and we'll continue to report on what we hear. You are listening to Radiotherapy, everyone. You've just been listening to Dr Catherine Daly, who is from RMIT University. Next up, we've got Dr Luke Martin from Beyond Blue to talk about um, dads and how they cope with kids. Just a reminder too, don't forget we've got our Facebook page, Radiotherapy at Triple R. Um, jump on board because as well as talking about the show and um, your ability to comment and uh, see what's coming up, we also throw lots of health-related articles on the site during the week. So uh, stay tuned and use that portal to give us as much feedback as you can because we love hearing from everyone to see if we can improve what we do here. Hey, uh, next up we have Dr Luke Martin. Now, Luke is a clinical psychologist who trained and practised in Canberra, working primarily with children and their families. He moved to Melbourne to work for the Australian Psychological Society and then moved on, and now he is with Beyond Blue. And he's most recently been working on, a pro, on projects for new dads at risk of depression. Interestingly, he's also a fairly new dad himself, although he's got three kids, so that's not that new in my book. He's got three daughters under five years of age, so uh, he's just as happy, I suspect, to be uh, in Brunswick um, talking on the radio as he is at home on helping with the family duties. G'day, Luke. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. I'll come in every week as needed. (laughs) Come a regular, (laughs) although I suspect you'll face a mutiny at home. Yeah, I mean, I'm in trouble just for being here, to be honest. Hey, what is it? Just as a, you know, what is it like having five, ki- having three kids under five? That just, when I read that, it's, I've only ever had one child, and it sends a shiver down my spine. It must be hard work. It is great, and it's brutal at the at the same time. It is very, very demanding, uh, very relentless. But as every dad says, you wouldn't change it for the world. But so it's, you it's know, hard work. that probably the first question I wanted to ask you links to that so closely. Why is having a child such a high risk for men? Traditionally, we think we know about women and postnatal depression, and that's always our focus. It's only recently about men. Why is it at high risk for men? Yeah, we did some research a little while ago that really found three main things. The first was you just get flooded with a bunch of new stresses, which we know erodes your mental health over time. 
new baby, not sleeping, bit of conflict in your relationship, pressure at work, you're really tired but you have to keep performing, you can't see your mates, you've got no time for yourself, the basics of wellness go out the window. This is this is the story that Dad's told us. <laughs> That's a sales that are, pitch for fatherhood, <laughs> isn't it? The dads that are finding it tough, that is their experience and those in that old dad has that experience but that's the narrative of a distressed dad. The second level is they can feel pretty isolated and like a bit of a third wheel. It's all about the mum and the baby, where do I fit in, how do I learn how to do this new role? And the third thing was really around often becoming a dad brings up some deeper stuff about your relationship with your own dad and also how am I going in life? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? So there's a lot in the psychology of a new dad that we have ignored for a very long time. Wow. And I should probably caveat by saying most dads cope with that transition pretty well. But there's a subset that really struggle with that and it can be really a serious issue for lots of men. And that's an issue kind of broadly for, generally speaking, for men, right? They don't tend to be proactive about mental health concerns in the same way that women are encouraged to be. Would you say that's Absolutely, accurate? Absolutely, yeah. So, and that's true for obviously for depression. We know that often men don't seek help or they wait until a crisis until they do. But even when you become a dad and you have these minor stresses, the whole idea that there's information and advice out there that I can lean upon to help me through it is not the default way for lots of men. So mm. there's, there's a bit of that going on as well. So when... Um dads do have a child but is there like a standard way they react or respond to fatherhood yeah usually the the reaction the first reaction is is obviously the amazement and the euphoria is a very common response the handing out of the cigar phase yeah there's that phase (laughs) and then you have the reality versus the expectations phase which is oh this is actually a lot harder than i thought it was going to be i thought i would be down the park with a kid and my shoulder and an ice cream but the day-to-day trudge of parenthood is, is a lot harder than people think. And, and often at around the three- to six-month mark, that reality sets in and they really need to lean upon their supports to get through those first 12 months. And what's that leaning supposed to look like, ideally? Ideally, well, ideally it, it would really be connecting with other new parents, particularly other new dads, so you get that sense of I'm not alone in finding this tricky or, or sharing ideas for how to troubleshoot situations. And when you need to, leaning upon parenting supports, helplines... <laughs> And, and those kind of things. So it's really just the idea of I, it's hard to do this by myself. I need someone to help me through it. And are there those sorts of supports available to dads? I mean, obviously there's things like mother's groups and there's lots of support out there for new mums. Are, are new dads a sort of neglected group, would you say? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to say, rightly so, there is a really big emphasis on supporting the mum and the baby, but there isn't much in place for dads. They don't mm. have a, a dad's group the way there's a mum's group. Mm. We don't screen for PND and dads the way we do in mums. So they, they are a little bit under the radar at the moment. And we, are, we know one in ten dads does get depressed, so it's, it's an issue. Can you know, it's did just out of interest. I when I um, had my child at the about the six month mark, we had to move to another state, up to Brisbane, to work for a year. And so I was only working part time. We'd gone up there for my wife's work at the time, and so I started a dad's group with a couple of other, just a couple of other. No, I didn't so much start it. You know, chatting at work on the part time work I was doing. There was a couple of other guys who had had babies around the same time, so we decided, and we we're all working part time, so we decided to meet up once a week and. Uh, you know, it was such a stereotypical dad's group, but I loved it. You know, we would go along. We, we're all doctors and we're all shrinks, um, but we'd crack open a um, oh we'd crack God. open a beer or two, <laughs> and we'd let the kids just crawl around the floor. They were all sort of six to twelve months. I was ah, do your own thing, kids. Dads are having a beer. Although you know, we kept the and I. You know, have you done a similar thing being a new dad yourself? Everyone's laughing at me. People, be on my side for a change. <laughs> Luke, did, have you got a father's group? Given that you are in this industry and you know how as important it is and you know the structures we have for women, um, you know, for new mums, have you done the same? 
I've done it through my friends and my brothers. Yeah. So I have a little informal dad's group of people going through the same life stage as me. I haven't formally joined a, a group full yeah. of strangers, but there are lots of those popping up, which is really cool. But, yeah, for me it was my brother, my some of my good mates just around, hey, I'm struggling with this, oh, are you finding this? And often it's not a solution, it's just someone going... This is a little bit tricky. We need to wait for this wave to pass. Cool. And you crack open a beer and you get out your phone and you gamble on the races and stuff on your gambling. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll behave myself. I'll behave myself. So tell us about the app. Tell, oh, it's not really an app. It's an SMS service. Tell yeah, us about that. Yeah, that's right. That. So we, we work with Richard Fletcher at the Uni of Newcastle, who's one of Australia's kind of fathering gurus, and he designed this service where... Dads get sent a text message which is timed to their baby's development. So it kind of tells them what they need to know when they need to know it kind of Mm. thing. And it gives them tips around how to look after a baby, how to bond with your baby, how to be a supportive partner, how to look after yourself. And for dads, about every three weeks they get a message saying, how are you travelling on a one-to-five scale? If you say that you are struggling quite a bit, you get an offer for a phone call to talk it through. So it's both advice and information as well as a bit of a support network for for escalating dads that are are finding it hard. And so far dads are really loving it. What's the assumption that um, men who would otherwise keep their problems to themselves that they'll use the service. Yeah, well, there's just two things. We know that often when, when groups are put on for dads, they don't they don't turn up. Either they're, they're too busy or it's just not the kind of thing they would do. And also seeking help anonymously is a bit of a, a pathway right. for some men. So through a text message, they don't need to go anywhere. It comes to them. And an anonymous phone call is a way of talking it through as well. So there's a couple of barriers this, this overcomes. When did this start? When did you launch this? this uh, so Richard Fletcher's been working on this for a couple of years. He's building up the evidence from a pilot study. We just finished a feasibility study. So it's probably been in the go for maybe two two years Mm -hmm. and we're recruiting for an RCT at the moment and we're we're really hoping to to get dads to register at smsfordads.com. Oh, wait a second. You're going to have to explain that one. RCT? Oh, so randomised control trials. So we're at the point at the moment where we know dads like this program. They they feel it's helpful to them in a, in a number of ways. But we want to test the robustness of that. Does it actually improve mental health outcomes? Does it improve father incompetence? Father incompetence as a risk or a protective factor for, for mental health. So we just want to do a better quality study on on. Um, SMS for dads to really know that it's helping people and being really confident about and that. And by being randomised and controlled, obviously you'll have a control group, many people who don't get the SMSs and you'll look at the outco- their parenting outcomes, stuff yeah, like that. And yeah, people can right. sign up for that, did you they say? They can sign up, it's free, SMS for dads with a four dot com and yeah, you just sign up and that's all you need to do, the text will come to you. So the intention, there's going to be a longitudinal aspect to this. Yeah, so, so you can, you can sign you up in to... pregnancy. Yep. Uh, and through until about six months after the birth. So uh-huh. you receive text that entire time and there's pre and, and post measures as well. What's magic about six months after? Usually the, I guess, the, the, the storm, so to speak, and settle down a little bit after that six-month mark. From personal experience, when, once you hit 12 months, you know you're through the thick of it. Is, is uh-huh. most has been my experience. But certainly leading up to the birth in those first six months are, are really tricky. Tell me, so... You know, you're working in this area and you're a new dad. How has working in this area changed, Hmm. altered the way you parent or be a parent? You know, how has it affected you personally is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, At first I think it probably freaked me out a little bit because you read so much about the importance of fathers Mm. in the literature. (laughs) So the stakes got really, oh, I've got a really good job here, otherwise things are a little bit tricky. Mm. But I think what it's really done is made me be more intentional about my fathering. So I make sure I design my life so I can be around and, be engaged and be present and just knowing that my role is important. Re- more of a reinforcement of that rather than a, I've changed anything drastic has been the main thing. 
It is so interesting, you know, how things have changed. I gave a talk yesterday at uh, at the Rye Women's Group about um, how to relieve stress and help adolescents who are going through stress. And it got me thinking about all of these issues. And I talked to my dad a lot about it too. You know, and, and certainly he tells me in his era there was just no expectation really for him to be involved. Like mm. he says it didn't even cross his mind to attend my sporting events. Which was, were, to be honest, they were relatively easy to miss because essentially I sat on the bench while a game was being played. But you know, he said there was just no expectation. He said it just didn't cross his mind. And it freaks him out when he sees, you know, um, my generation, you know, me and all my mates, you know, we don't miss, we try not to miss a second about, you know, and we do school pickups and all that sort of stuff because the expectations and the, everything's changed around. You know, when I did school pickups, you know, now there was always dads there. And we'd sit around and kick a footy and we'd drop off in the morning and we'd, you know, chuck balls. And whereas th- things are changing rapidly. But, I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Do you reckon it's, you know, how, how, how rap- have they changed? Has it reached the rest of society? Or is it just people like us who work in the industry? Yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that the nature of fatherhood has definitely changed. I think there's a whole generation of dads that want to be closer to their kids than they their dad was with them. That's I think that's a pretty fair truth. I think you're right, though, at pointing around the pendulum has swung a little bit to the pressure that dads put on themselves to be the perfect dad or to be really involved. And what we found in our research was that pressure to be kicking goals in all areas of your life can really build up and, and put a lot of pressure on yourself and then you can get critical of yourself when that isn't happening. But I, I think definitely, I know for my dad, my dad never changed a nappy and yet I've changed a million of them. So I think it's, yeah, there's definitely a... Um, a the, the dad of today has a, a template of a father as provider but he's matching it with a template of his peer group, which is very involved. And I think those it's a new type of father we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, I think there's probably a period of change we have to undergo where we have to update the... Oh, maybe this is going to be too complex to cover in a couple of minutes. I think it is. So I'll, I'll just skip that comment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now we want to know. Quick... Wait a second. I'm just so happy that finally I'm not the one being laughed at. I'm not <laughs> the one who has to do all my production on the run because, I, I, you know, whatever comes into my head comes out of my mouth. Oh, Dr. Trainer, we're applause. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, Luke, do you have any quick final tips for new dads? Anything that you'd recommend to, to stay on top of their mental health? Yeah, well, obviously the, the basics of... I'm going to write these down. <laughs> staying in contact with your relationships, getting the whatever sleep you can get, try and get it, get your diet right. Um, you know, your lifestyle has a really big impact on your wellbeing. That's the first thing. But the second thing is the mindset that I'm learning how to do this. So don't beat yourself up if you make mistakes or do the wrong thing. You are, it's a skill you are learning to be a parent like any other skill. And I, personally, I found that mindset really, really helpful to give myself a break. Yeah, it was occurring to me while I was listening to you talk through that, that maybe one of the obstacles for asking for help is the uh, voice that says to ourselves this is supposed to be natural. I'm supposed to just be able to do it. There's no learning to be done. I'm either a good dad or I'm not. Yeah, it's it's exactly right, yeah. And I think the the cycle that we often see is when it's I should be doing this more naturally and I'm not and then I'm not a good dad and I'm not a good provider and once that spiral of negative Mm. thoughts happens and you don't feel you're doing well in those areas, things can get quite serious. So intervening really early around, I'm learning to do this, I'm going to make mistakes, I can ask for help to get through this is the way to go. I love that. So the... Essence being that when you're struggling, you don't back out of the role, which I, I do think happens a lot. People either back out of the marriage or they back out of the role and stop parenting. The idea is just say, wow, you know, I need to train a bit harder. I need to learn a bit more. I need to figure out the challenges. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I think as we all, we don't like unpleasant emotions. We like to avoid them, and that's when problems become larger. So so intervening early and nipping things in the bud by approach is, is the way to go. So I'm going to summarise. I wrote down, you went through them quick, but I'm going to write down your three big tips. Tips. Here they are. One, keep contact with your relationship. Make sure your relationship stays healthy. And that's important. Obviously, that's you hear that in the literature for women too. You know, the importance of keeping the relationship going, working as a team, etc. Your second one was all that stuff about, you did it quick, but it's all that stuff about um, psychological first aid, I often call it. Sleep, exercise, nutrition, looking at your levels of stress. Absolutely. And then your big third one, which I love, is that whole mindset thing, taking on the mindset that this is a learning task and you're going to learn about it for the next, well, for the rest of your life, yeah. and you keep trying. Yeah, that's you're well summarised. Oh, good. <laughs> Finally, I got something right. You know, every time I've tried to paraphrase today, it's just fallen flat on my face. So it's good. Hey, um... And so you want people to... I'm going to put this on our uh, Facebook page, smsfordads.com. I'll put a link to that for any dads who want to uh, take part in the trial. That'd be fantastic. And uh, otherwise, um, thank you so much for coming in and talking about that. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really good. That sounds interesting. Hey, um, we're going to wind up and start passing over to the uh, scientists over there at Einstein and GoGo. Um, but before we do, what have we got to talk about? What's update? We've already mentioned the uh, Facebook page. We mentioned the Facebook page. We've got... Uh, we're on demand... Oh, Radio On Demand. How do people get onto that? Go right to the uh, the homepage, go to the uh, program grid guide and you just click on the radiotherapy on the grid and that'll take you into the on-demand options. And are we still podcasting? And there's a podcast you sub- can subscribe to as well via the via the webpage, via the Triple R homepage. It is all happening. And what have you... I'm just... Um, I'm just patting slightly. Um, <laughs> Dr. Trainer, Maybe I did have time got? to talk about my complex thing. I'm just sitting here shell-shocked because now Why? I know what it feels like to be Doolittle. Everyone laugh at you. And... <laughs> it's not that bad. No, nah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> okay, but you... Um, no more questions? No, We're no, done. no. I'm done. I'm done. We're done. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, the other thing I was just going to mention before we go, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but I've, I put a link to it on the Facebook page, and so everyone has a, an opportunity to go and have a look at it, and we'll try and squeeze it into the next week's um, session because there were a few comments along the way, and it's about the assisted dying legislation. There's this beautiful little summary of what's happening around Australia. It's uh, essentially, it's in The Guardian anyway. I'll, I'll, you can have a look at the link on Facebook and make any comments there, and we'll bring it up next time. But it basically compares the legislative changes going on around the country, in particular the Victorian Victorian changes are due to be released this Wednesday. New South Wales has just put up their changes and it talks a little bit about what happened in South Australia and how their um, sister dying legislation got defeated last year by just one vote after many, many years of trying to get it up. So uh, I think that's a really important debate for us to keep an eye on. What's the? We mentioned the AMA and their involvement in public issues mm. such as this. Where is the AMA at the moment on this? Oh, my goodness, you put me on the spot. I yeah. haven't, I, From memory, it, I think they're still against. I think they're saying they're not... They're not into assisted dying legislation. It's at this been stage. really complex amongst the whole medical community, and you know, really, I've got to be honest. Incredibly intelligent debate coming out. Some of my close friends, who I normally agree with on everything, are completely against yeah. it. And it's so, you know, it's still a big work in progress. But we probably haven't got time to go into all the details here. I more just wanted to mention it. Anyway, we'll come back to that as soon as we can. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. As I said, we're going to hand you over to the scientists at Einstein and Gogo for an hour of everything to do with science. Thanks for listening to us. Have a good week everyone. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.